Hello, this is Fraser Rice, and welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. John Farr has helped to restore the Avon Movie Theater in Stamford, Connecticut, and the Bedford Playhouse in Bedford, New York. Boasting a half-century love of great film and a career in advertising, John guides smart audiences to smart films through his website, bestmoviesbyfar.com. Welcome aboard, John. Thanks, Fraser. Well, it's terrific for you to be here, and I like to tell my audience a little bit about what's happening with you. But if you could go into your bio a little bit and and how you came to be part of the movie world and and how that translated into redeveloping the Bedford Playhouse. Well, I I was a native New Yorker, grew up in Manhattan, and then I went to Princeton after going to boarding school. And then I went into the ad game uh, for almost 20 years at Ogilvy. And then I had a wonderful midlife crisis when I was 41 years old and said, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I turned to my wife and said, may I quit? And she said, OK. <laughs> uh, I had loved movies since I was a kid. There was a show called The 430 Movie on Channel 7 ABC that I used to go home and watch every afternoon. And uh, I always remember it. And uh, I said, I've got to do something with movies. I didn't want to make movies because I knew that was too hard. Uh, but I knew that I wanted to do something. And I had an insight, which was that when people try to pick movies or want to pick movies to watch on a Friday night with their spouse or significant other, it's hard. There's too much choice. Back in the day, I called it the blockbuster syndrome. You might remember the, the blockbuster video stores. Oh, very much. I wandered around many times looking at the boxes. You know, you try to figure out what you want to do and you end up overwhelmed by choice. There's no question about it. And it's what we used to call in the advertising business a high involvement decision. <laughs> when you get a dog of a movie, even if it's just your significant other, they're looking at you like you're an idiot. And why do we waste two hours of our time watching that mediocre film? Whereas if you pick something great, you feel like a hero. So I thought, wouldn't it be great if we could help with that? And I created a website with my wife called Best Movies by Far, which literally isolates the best movies available on, at that time, it was video, DVD. Right. Now it's DVD, Blu-ray, and streaming. And these are movies that are old and new. They're narrative films, documentary films, domestic and foreign. And they're all recommendations. They're not reviews. Right. So they're all great. Yep. One of the things that I think is interesting, you're occupying a role that Siskel and Ebert really came to the fore on, although they reviewed positively and negatively. Nowadays, you know, everybody with a website can have a review and the savvy people behind movie marketing pick one that hopefully helps out. It's nice to have a curated list from somebody who knows what they're talking about. People don't have a lot of time. People are very, very busy. They don't have a lot of time and they want to know, what do I watch? They don't, you know, okay, you read a review. Sometimes you read a review and you take 10 minutes to read it and you still don't know whether you're supposed to watch it or not. And you're like, well, I don't know. And what we're trying to do is give people a shortcut. Go through the format again a little bit. You've curated a bunch of the movies, so you're not putting anything up on your website that you don't like. When you go onto the website, just a little bit of a summary of what happens uh, or, a, or a more fuller detail. Well, you've got editorial, but the idea, again, is to make it quick and easy. So you can search by genre and, and decade and country and mood uh, and get to a movie pretty quickly. And then when you go to a review page for the movie – all there are are two paragraphs. One is what's it about and the other one is why I love it. And you can read those two little paragraphs and know, OK, I'm watching it. Oh, that's terrific. And it's a struggle now. I mean with Netflix and Hulu and other things and you're sitting there trying to figure out what's happening, 
The blockbuster syndrome has only gotten worse. Right. Because Netflix is just – and Netflix has got some great stuff, but it's also got so much not-so-great stuff, we'll say. <laughs> um, and it's tonnage. And there's sort of this feeling that, oh, well, people want choice. Well, you know what? I don't think they want that much choice. They want good choice. Yeah, they want good choices. Exactly. So you've got the love of movies and you've turned that into a into an interesting media portal for people to sort of weigh, you know, weigh in on your opinion and use it to, for their own movie choices. How does that segue into the movie house world and, and how did you get involved with that? Well, as you know, I, I live in Bedford, New York. Mm -hmm. My wife and I moved out there and we were having our third kid in 1992 and I started a movie club in my basement where we would do what I really do now still, which is you know, curate and introduce great films and get people together to watch them, and they love them. And one of my guests said, hey, there's a gentleman over in Greenwich named Chuck Royce who's just bought the Avon Theater in downtown Stanford that's been shuttered, and he's sort of trying to figure out what to do with it. And uh, I can put you in touch with him. I said, sure, why not? And the rest is history. Chuck and I got together and my wife, Olivia, and Deborah Royce, his wife, and we brought back the Avon Theater and it transformed downtown Stanford. This was back in 2003. Mm. Uh, and uh, it was a joy for me because uh, I did all the sort of the marketing and I was, if you will, the front man. Uh, and on opening night, I got to interview Robert Altman. Oh, terrific. Uh, the late director who gave me the wisdom that has driven me ever since, which is to say that it's always better to see a great movie again than an average one the first time <laughs> because even though the movie hasn't changed, you have and you always see something new. And I always find when I rewatch a movie, I end up honing in on lots of things that I didn't see before. I start really triangulating around particular dialogue that I liked. And one thing that I think I don't like about myself as a movie viewer, or at least in the catalog of movies that I've seen, I start gravitating towards scenes that I like and get away from other parts that I am not as happy with. And then I get really nitpicky with the uh, structure and, you know, they, they could have ditched this scene or I wish they'd done something else. Is, is, is that the sign of a good movie watcher or, or a frustrated one? <laughs> That's the sound of a 20, 21st century movie watcher, I think, Fraser. <laughs> but, you know, what I always say is, I mean, there are times when a great movie may even drag a little bit. You're sighing and everything else. What counts is how you feel at the end. Right. Uh, how you feel at the end credits, and maybe even more importantly, how you feel when you wake up the next morning. Are you thinking about it? Right. And to diverge just for a second, I saw Roma uh, on Netflix, the beautiful black and white sort of Mexican-themed film. And I came out of it and I said I, I liked it. And the cinematography is extraordinary. And I thought the story was really nice. But I, I'd heard the hype going into it. And I said, uh, I'm not quite sure that that's it. But then I went and saw it again to sort of clarify my own opinion what was going on the following weekend, and, and I liked it more. And I think it's one of those that I think – I don't know if it's built for heavy reviewing over and over again. But again, something like that where I just – I'm finding new things each time I've seen it or at least the two times I've seen it. It's a mood piece hmm. uh, and and you're watching it to see a director at the peak of his powers. Right. And if you if you watch Roma and just say, let's look at what he's doing with the camera and how he is setting up each shot and the mood that he's creating and the feeling that he's creating, that's that's why – that's the work of genius and that's why that film is so special. The, the one scene – there are a lot of really beautiful – 
cinematography examples in it, but the scene where the old boyfriend goes into the furniture store and sees the mother and so on, and then you see the the revolt happening outside, and it's all in one panned shot. I I can't imagine the planning that happened with that. God help you if you needed more than one take. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly. Well, that's what Cecil B. DeMille was dealing with back in the 50s. I mean, you know, he didn't have trick photography, he didn't have uh, digital effects. You had thousands of extras and you had to coordinate them. And at actual film. Uh, yes. So, you know, that you had a real budgetary issue if that take didn't happen. You got it. You got it. <laughs> or the train that blows up. And, you know, you yeah, have to right. film the train that blows up. That's Bridge on the River Kwai, that famous scene. That's right. That's right. Oops, we forgot to put film in the camera, Mr. Lean. That would not have been good. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> would have been really bad. So you had a nice success with the Avon. So take us through a little bit. You're back in Bedford, the Bedford Playhouse, and for those who uh, don't know the area or or the theater that well, it's right in the middle of what I would call small-town America. Obviously, Bedford's a a sort of well-to-do place with lots of famous people who live there. But the movie theater itself is, I think, really one of the real central, certainly central cultural components of of the town. And I think it's it's one of the central meeting places for a lot of things. I grew up going there and uh, sitting in what was the former balcony. And I even was there before... Uh, or I'd been to movies there before it had been divided into two, and it was one big thing. You're old, Fraser. My God. Ancient. <laughs> high mileage, too. <laughs> but for those of us who grew up there and to sort of see where it is now, I, I, it's a real treat. But it had some tough times and, and a very uncertain future around 2015. Take us through your experience leading up to 2015 and how you felt about the theater. And then what started to happen when the real estate around there, when plans started to change? Well, it all started with a phone call in the summer of 2014. It was the chairman of the Bedford Historical Society calling me up and saying, did you know the Bedford Playhouse was going to shut? And I said, I had no clue. It was not out yet. But Bowtie Cinemas, who'd held the lease for a long time, simply said, we're not making enough money. And unless you give us a break on the lease, we're out. And the landlord said, no, we're not going to give you a break on the lease. And so they were gone, and Alchemy Partners, which were new owners of that property, were trying to figure out what are we going to do with this beautiful old theater. And I got this phone call, and they said, would you look into it? Would you see maybe it can be saved? And I still think about that because I I almost just said, you know, I've got a lot of things I'm thinking about doing, and I really don't have time to deal with this. And instead, I just said, well, I'll take a look. And I did. And I went in and I looked at this beautiful theater that had been twinned. That's the industry vernacular for when you have a one-screen theater that then is cut in half. Right. uh, Which was done for economic reasons back in the early 80s. And I turned to my friend and partner, Bob Harris, who's one of the great film preservationists of all time, who was with me that day. And I said, this is a gut renovation if we're going to do it because – What I had in mind uh, was something like the Avon and the Jacob Burns Film Center in Pleasantville, which is – these are not-for-profit art centers. And they are driven by events, really, special events where you have members who come and see directors and actors present their films. And you've got to have good screens and can't have these little tiny screens and – Sound has to be good. Sound has to be good. I mean directors – Just be comfortable and – Directors and actors care about that. Mm -hmm. And so I looked at Bob and I said, this is a gut renovation. And we had no idea what it was going to really cost. 
uh, if we had, we probably would have headed for the hills. <laughs> and it took four years of raising money. And uh, it was two and a half years before we even were at a place where we felt we could begin. And boy, oh boy, September of 2018, after four years, we opened this glorious facility and it has transformed the village. The Avon did the same thing for Stanford. I mean, when I first went down to downtown Stanford in 2003 or two, whatever it was, it looked like a war zone. And now I go down there and there are restaurants and there's activity and it, it's vibrant. And I got to tell you, I remember early in 2015, it was a wintry night and Bedford 234, the restaurant next door was being renovated and the theater was newly shut and it was like out of the twilight zone. You know, it was uh, tumbleweeds going up the street. I mean, there was nobody. And I thought, you know what? That can't be. You know, this is a beautiful, beautiful village. We should have people <laughs> walking around. We should have things to do. And uh, bringing back the playoffs could really make that happen. And now I'm seeing this dream come true because I can already feel the difference in the town with the playhouse open now. Well, and it's one of those things. I, I worked for the Department of Economic Development before I went to law school. And there was always, you know, do you have stadiums be the driver of economic development for towns and cities or uh, different industries and so on? And in a place like Bedford, which is, again, sort of small town, you know, well-to-do place – Putting in a factory in somewhere isn't going to happen. The zoning is difficult. The hue and cry would, would explode. It's tough to find those drivers to, to revitalize a community. And, and it sort of goes to, in one sense, a little bit of luck, but also some really good foresight on your part and Alchemy and the others who are sort of developing and saying, you know, there, there's something cultural here that we think can be a magnet and turn a downtown into something that people want to come to and that that effects will bleed off nicely for the rest of the community. We did recognize that. And I have to say there was a lot of luck involved because one thing was Ken Horn, who's the head of Alchemy, and I hit it off. I mean, we just got on. Uh, we got along from the very beginning. And I basically said to him, I got no money and we don't have a lot of time, but I want to try to save this thing. And Ken actually fronted us some money to do some marketing and to just see if we could raise a certain amount of money over a short period of time. And we ended up basically raising $2.5 million over three months. Wow. Oh, that's, that's amazing. And then we were off to the races, but I knew that $2.5 million wasn't going to do it right. for everything that we wanted to do. But it was enough so that Ken could turn to me and say, you know what, we're going to go with this. You have to get momentum and critical mass. It tells the story that you've got to have a partner or partners that, that believe in what you're doing. Right. And it also proved that the demand was there. Right. You know, there was enough demand. You know, people said to me, you will, you know, Bedford is, they don't like to spend money on these kinds of things. People like to stay indoors and enjoy their homes and... This is never going to happen. You're never going to do it, which, of course, only made me more determined to prove them wrong. Well, I think, too, that I think the demographics of the town have changed. I mean, I am a longtime resident and grew up there and so on. And it's a different place than it was back then. And I think the, the people in many ways want to get out of their houses as much as anything else. And they also want to sell their houses. And, and that was the <laughs> other thing. Uh, people say, well, I'm not really a movie person. Why should I give? I said, well, do you want to sell your place? I said, it, this is an investment in the community. Even if you don't love movies, young people who are moving out from the city care about amenities, as they call them. You know, what do we do on a Friday night? Are there restaurants? Are there things to do? Are there cultural offerings? We didn't have much. Uh, we have Caramore and we have KMA and they're great. Yep. But, you know, we needed, we needed something like this. 
And, and it's important, I think, to have it within the town proper because, it, again, it's a driver to get people to come back in and to go to 234 Restaurant and Truck and some of the other places and have a reason to get in. Uh, to me, it seems it's been a terrific project. It's also great because, as you say, we have a lot of celebrities who have settled there and they have a place to come and talk about their work. Right. And they actually enjoy doing it. And boy, do we enjoy having them. And when you see someone like Glenn Close sparking with an audience of residents who are there and, and, you know, we did a screening of the wife and, you know, heard her speak about the making of it and I interviewed her. It was magic. Those are really magic evenings. And people leave to say transformed, maybe a, a little bit of an exaggeration, but it's really something special. And to think, oh, my goodness, my house is three minutes away from here and I just went and had this amazing experience that I would expect to have maybe in New York City. No, and, and you get to use the word experience, which I think is key. I think that people have, in a sense, really gravitated their lives around having good experiences. And when living in the place that can help generate that for you and to create that special experience that – that, that you can talk about and take with you going forward, that's a nice thing to center a town around. I, I would argue that you know, just dropping a, a magnificent movie theater within any town isn't necessarily going to do what you want it to do unless you have sort of that cultural fixation around it that, that can create that nice experience that people can take with them. Well, that's the other piece of this I want to mention, which is this is not just a movie theater. I mean, we have a cafe, we have a bar area. This is a, a community hub, a place for people to come and hang out. Plus, we're going to be doing a lot of author events and readings. We've done musical performances. We want this to be a real cultural center. And again, we're so lucky because we can draw from this incredible amount of talent, both around the area and, and of course, we're only an hour away from New York. So right. that's great, too. In my dream, I'd love to have an author signing or, a, or some sort of event for my book. And then I was a producer on a horror movie. I'm not sure how that would work with you guys. But uh, you know what? Why not? We're open. I mean, you know, particularly if you bring, if you bring an audience. Right. So, you know, I can fill this room. I mean, we're, we're open. We want to do that because that's what community means. Everybody talks about community. But it, it's an overused word. But that's what we are creating here. One of the neat things is the way you set up the interior. You have the cafe. You've got uh, different venues within the theater that you can use. Right. One of the things that I thought was really novel and which I didn't understand until I went in and checked it out was what you were going to do with the balcony space. And what I thought you did in changing that to provide sort of a larger screening room and then a smaller screening room type of scenario, I thought that was very clever and a good use of space, even though, you know, from a nostalgia standpoint, I'd say, oh, I wish the balcony was still there. It wasn't going to be very useful. And in fact, what you've done is created two extremely useful spaces out of that. Yes. And of course, we're doing a mix of more commercial films and art house films. We're committed to doing art house films as well. And there's sometimes when we can say, we're going to take that movie because we may not get 100 people to come and see it, you know, on a Friday night, but we'll certainly get 30 people to come and see it on a Friday night. We can put it in one of the smaller theaters. Right. Um, so that gives us a lot of flexibility. Uh, and one of those two theaters off the, the bar and cafe area is is a flat floor space. We can do all sorts of different things in there. Sure. Um, art exhibits and, you know, poetry readings. And the other thing is that we are going to be renting out the spaces and already are doing so. Uh, it's been very, very popular. 
you know, the game here is that we have to have as many lines of revenue as, as we can. I mean, the days of saying, well, we're going we're gonna to make it by selling movie tickets and popcorn, it's just, it's not on. You know, you can't do that anymore. <laughs> you right. have to have other, other lines of revenue. And again, you know, we are not for profit. So we have an annual fund and we, you know, we have donors who are going to help us uh, grow and thrive. And if we can't do it in Bedford, I don't know where, where we could do it. I don't think you could do it in many other places. Yeah. It's, a, it's a special place with a special constituency. And so I think a lot of nice things lined up in order for it to be as successful as it's been so far. So what do we have to look forward to in 2019? Now, we talked a little bit about poetry readings and uh, different screenings and regular movies that you put out. What is some of the other programming that you've got in mind? Well, again, we're going to be trying out. I mean, 2019 is going to be our first full year. We're going to be trying out various different things. And again, Classic Tuesdays, I'm very excited about. That's my baby. I'm I'm excited about that, too. I get some commentary around some of the old saws that I grew up with. I think it'll be pretty fun. Last two days of every month, I will be there to introduce a, a classic, an enduring classic. And we just did Vertigo the other night, and it was a big success. I was thrilled uh, on a Tuesday night to get, you know, that many people to come out. It was wonderful. And we're trying to make it almost like a club. Again, my old movie club. And I have people who come again and again and again. We are going to be doing a concert series. Uh, When I say a concert series, I mean concert movies. Uh, our big theater has Dolby Atmos, which is a big deal. It's like the latest version of Dolby. So when we present concert movies, it sounds like you are there. And, you know, the fact that we have a bar and, you know, people have a couple of drinks and a snack and then go down and, you know, and have that experience of, of watching Stop Making Sense or The Last Waltz, both of which sold out, basically. So those have been fantastic. And we have, again, more special guests coming up. We're doing a a documentary all about Proposition 8, which was absolutely wonderful, which features David Boys. Mm -hmm. He's coming. Uh, We have have Lena Olin coming soon. So we'll have those special guests, and there are many that will will pop up that we can't even announce now uh, that will happen. But we're committed to bringing the names, frankly, in our community to the theater to do special events. I mean, Clive Davis... Uh, the legendary uh, music man Clive Davis is our biggest donor, and we are definitely going to be doing something with him. Uh, there's a very, very fine documentary on him, on, on his life that we'd like to show and to bring him in. And, and think about it. To your point, you know, we're a little town, uh, and we just have this amazing access to talent. And we also have Joni Evans, who's, we're planning an, uh, to continue our author series. We've already had Linda Fairstein come, um, Sheila Nevins come of HBO, and we're going to have more of those. Oh, terrific. So there's going to be a, a whole lot. And we have family matinees on the weekends, and we want to do more music. We're going to be looking for a corporate sponsor so that we can do a, a more uh, robust schedule of, of music performances. And again, you know, what's wonderful about that is our large theater is only 160 seats. Right. But it has a 37-foot screen. So it's great for movies and it has great legroom. But for live performances, it's absolutely wonderful because there's not a bad seat in the house. But it's hard with music. It's a little more challenging to make it work economically because 160 seats isn't that much. That's right. So you need, you need some sponsorship. But we're going to get that. 
and we're going to do more music as well. So there's there's a lot on tap. Oh, that's terrific. Uh, before we head into a couple of fun questions, I, I sort of told the story to a friend of mine that uh, way back when Bedford had two theaters. They had the the Bedford Playhouse and they had a theater where the old Citibank is in Hunting Ridge Mall. And I told the story that that place was doomed because I saw Return of the Jedi there in 1983, and my mom fell and cracked a rib, and shortly thereafter, it turned into a bank. So <laughs> I, I, I don't wish that on you at all. We'll, uh, <laughs> I will be very careful with your mother. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Great. Um, okay, so with your movie experience, what are your favorite movies? What do you go back to and just say, this is it? It's so hard. It is so hard to, to answer that question. I'm asked it a lot. Having just shown Vertigo, um, the question always comes up, is that Hitchcock's greatest movie? I love Vertigo. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's his greatest movie yet. I love North by Northwest. Right. Uh, and I love a movie called Notorious uh, from 1946 with Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman. I guess you could say I'm a very big Cary Grant fan. And I guess you could say I like the old stuff. And I mean the really old stuff. I just do because they're, they're story-driven. Uh, they're dialogue-driven. And I happen to like those kinds of movies. Sometimes I watch movies today. I love them. I love today's films, but they're so fast. I mean, the cut, cut, cut. The editing is so fast and everything is so rapid. And I love being able to sort of sink into an old movie where it's just a little slower. Right. Uh, and you're listening to language and you're listening to uh, dialogue that's that's crisp and clever. Uh, so I love the old screwball comedies. Casablanca was shown at the Playhouse on my 60th birthday, which happened this fall, just as we were opening. And that movie, I mean, you feel like a fool sort of saying that's my favorite movie because it's everyone talks about Casablanca. But really, I, I look at that film and I say, there's really nothing wrong with it. And it was it was developed in chaos. Like they were writing oh, this. They were writing the script ten minutes before they absolutely. were shooting. It, it, absolutely, it, it, it's a it's a miracle that it turned out so well. And Ingrid Bergman didn't know who she was leaving with at the end. She right. didn't know whether she was going to be the Bogart or 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 Arnold. Uh, and uh, Curtis said, you know, play it both ways. Right. And she didn't know what to do. That is a miracle of a film. There's no question about it. One of my favorite movies, and you know, I have the same problem. I have 50 that I could rattle off. But the one yeah. that really resonates with me is Gallipoli. I, mean, I, saw, it, I saw it very young. Yeah. Uh, and it's the first movie where I cared about everybody and I was devastated at the end. It's the first real emotional shot to the heart that I took in a movie theater. And it's always sort of stayed with me. And of course, that was the movie that kind of launched Mel Gibson to the stratosphere. Yes, it did. And beautifully shot and Peter Weir. Peter Weir was terrific. That's why it's so hard. I mean, you know, what's the greatest movie? I mean, uh, are we going to talk about international films? I mean, right. you know, I, I love French movies. Uh, you know, there's an old actor named Jean Gabin. Mm-hmm. Uh, I adore the Touche Pau Grisby. These kinds of movies. Grand Illusion. Hello. I mean, these are amazing films. I do I do worry. I'm not going to get on my soapbox, but I worry that a lot of people forget about them. And they think, oh, I don't want to watch a black and white movie. It's so old. And oh, it's a mistake. People should watch them. <laughs> well, hopefully things like Roma uh, get people to broaden their palate a little bit and be a little more patient in a movie theater yep. uh, and say, you know what, this this doesn't have car crashes and airplanes and things like that. And it's a this is a story that takes its time. And you have a director that is willing to linger on shots. And there's real value in that. The other movie I'd mentioned is Cold War, uh, which is a big favorite of mine. And it's just the same. It's black and white. 
and it is in many ways an old-fashioned movie. And and frankly, I look to the independent films and the uh, foreign films, international films, to honor what I love about the older films, which is story-driven, slower pace, and intelligent. And not to say that that commercial films aren't you know are not intelligent. Some are, a lot are, uh, but some aren't. Let's face it. So anyway, it's just there's so many good movies out there. One of the nice things I think too is that the, the cost of movie making in many ways has come down, and yes. that there are many different ways to distribute. So I, I, I'm optimistic that there are venues for people to to try different things, and that the quality will resonate and rise to the top somehow. It's true. It's it's easier to make a movie, but again, you got to have it break through. Oh, no um, question. <laughs> it's about finding the audience and having it grow, and and that is that's very challenging. Again, you know. A blessing and a curse we have is that there is so much content out there. Right. Uh, there's so much. And I spend my time investigating all sorts of titles all the time. And most of them I don't want to watch. And that's normal. I mean, I've I've said to people, one, maybe one out of ten movies is worth really seeing. Yeah. It's hard to make a uh, it's hard to make a movie. It's very hard to make a great movie. So I had my little experience helping to produce a horror movie a couple of years ago. And the punchline to that was I got involved and I said, well, I'll get involved, but I need to be the first person killed on screen. And that ultimately – that that ended up happening. But but the Rubik's Cube around marketing and selling a movie and how that works is, is – a I mean that's its own thing. But just the making of the movies, it's not for sissies. It's hard no, work. I mean I was really on screen hard. for 30 seconds and it took all day and I'm saying to myself, how do people do this? It's their baby. Uh, they work on it for two years or three years, you know, uh, from start to finish, and then they put it out there and, you know. And hope. And hope. And, and sometimes people are not kind, and sometimes the movie isn't that great or it doesn't quite work. That's what I love about great movies. They're alchemy. I mean, no one can know that they're going to make a great movie, honestly, because there are too many things that are out of their control. I've always found that fascinating. And the karma of everyone involved, I mean, if you have one thing out of place, it blows the whole thing up. And yep. whether it's the producer or one of the actors or the director's of pain or you know, the sound guy's bad or the cinematographer doesn't know what he's doing, it, 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 there are a thousand ways for it to screw up. And you hope to God that the screenwriter and the, the screenplay itself has enough of a spine to carry it through. I, I don't know. It is a miracle when it works and it's special. And most of the directors and actors that I've interviewed will say that. They'll say, you know, we didn't totally know that we had something so special. It just happened. I mean, you know, you think you have a great script, but when you're actually shooting it and you've casted it and you're looking at the stars, and you're going, they don't, oh my God, they're not really working together or they don't have it right. I'm not, I'm losing it. I'm losing the conception. It can happen. It's very, very tricky. And when it all clicks, as with Casablanca, it's magic. It's complete magic. And it's always fascinated me. That and the illusion of movies, you know, creating illusions, watching Vertigo the other night and knowing that the, the bell tower in that climactic scene uh, that's so important. Well, Hitchcock found the, the mission, the San uh, Baptista mission or Baptista mission, what it was called, but it didn't have a tower. 
So he had to create it. You know, he did it in post. Right. 1958. In things like Citizen Kane where Orson Welles was drilling holes in the floor to get the camera angles that he wanted. And and there are infinite numbers of stories of people having to to figure it out. Even Sam Raimi in Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. I mean, he pioneered the track method of sort of capturing the cinematography and rolling on tracks and so on. And without that, I mean, I I love those movies, but without that sleight of hand, I don't think a lot of the magic transfers. And that's my bread and butter because that's what I talk about when I speak about films. I talk about what was going on behind the scenes and people love it. Right. It's like going behind the velvet rope and getting an insider's look at how these movies actually get made and what goes right and what goes wrong and how you fix it and uh, the illusion of it. The fact, oh, we see something that looks real, but it's not real. So it's Oscar season. Any big picks? Any thoughts? I think we had a good year. Box office was up, which was great because it was not looking good as of, you know, the end of 2017. So we had a good year and we got a good crop. I never try to say this is what's going to happen because nobody knows. I got to tell you. But are there movies that I really do like? I think Black Panther was unusually good for Marvel. And, uh, and I enjoy that a lot. And that's going to win some awards, I think. Star is Born is one that really blew me away uh, for one reason, which is that story had been told actually not only three but four times before, right. starting with What Price Hollywood in 1932, which really is the same story. And the fact that Bradley Cooper could recreate it and make it fresh – is pretty incredible. It's pretty remarkable. I'm visibly angry he wasn't nominated for Best Director. Yeah, he he should have been. And for and, sure. and and I thought McKay being nominated for Best Director for Vice, I was not happy with that either. I, I was extremely underwhelmed with that movie. Yeah. Star is Born, on the other hand, I thought was terrific. It exceeded all expectations, uh, and I thought it was great. Now, I've gotten to know Glenn Close a little bit, and I am – I have a feeling that she could go all the way. And I hope I'm right. Mm-hmm. I would love to see her win Best Actress. She got the Golden Globe. She's never won. Right. She's been nominated a bunch of times over the years. And she gives a performance in The Wife that is incredible. I'd love to see her win, too. She's she's a really wonderful woman. Who's the best actor-actress who never won? Cary Grant. Cary Grant. <laughs> the answer to that for me was always Gary Oldman, but that all went away. He was going to win sometime. He's too good an actor, and he is a true character actor. Right. And Cary Grant's rap back in the day was, oh, he's not a character actor. He just plays himself. But I don't buy that. He was so good at comedy, and he was so good at action films and Hitchcock, and he was the most versatile actor, one of the more versatile actors I could think of. Harrison Ford, I don't think, gets enough credit for being as good an actor as he is, although he's played iconic roles and then he went and did Mosquito Coast and that didn't work. And I think he <laughs> it, it stung him. Uh, you know, leading way. men, stars, you know, Clark Gable going back and Paul Newman and Robert Redford, these folks are stars. George Clooney, they're stars. They're leading men, they're stars. It's not easy. I mean, they still have to act. And it's, oh, you know, they're just reading lines. No, they they no are actors and they're great and they make great movies. You know, there are character actors and there are what we used to call, as I say, leading men. But it doesn't really matter. If you give a great performance, you give a great performance. It doesn't matter whether you're being transformed into a very different looking character or if it works, it works. And it's not easy. It's really not easy. So I think all these stars 
from the past and present deserve great credit. Well, John, you, you've given a great performance. It's terrific to talk <laughs> to you, and your passion for movies comes out. I, I'm thrilled that the certainly the Avon that that has worked well, and I'm doubly thrilled that the Bedford Playhouse has been such a success. How do we stay in touch with uh, you and what happens there? Well, I always tell people, visit the website, bedfordplayhouse.org. Um, that'll tell you what's what's coming up. And I am very proud of the programming that we do, a wonderful variety of stuff. And if you're ever in Bedford, come and, and uh, have a cup of coffee, come and have a drink if it's 6 p.m. or later. Uh, we have a beautiful, uh, a beautiful bar called Bambi's, Bambi's Bar. I hang out there. <laughs> and uh, and just visit. It's it's special feeling in the place, and I really I really think that when people come, they smile. They wa- they walk into a place that's very welcoming and it's very special. I also invite people to visit bestmoviesbyfar dot com because they may find something on there that they hadn't thought of seeing, and they may see it and they may say, you know what, that was really really good. <laughs> I can specifically endorse it. It helped me sort of plan my weekend last weekend with a couple of movies that I hadn't really seen or heard that much about. So uh, wonderful, best films by far. That's what I live for. Yeah, it's actually best movies by far. Some people get it mixed up, but it's bestmoviesbyfar.com with two R's. And uh, invite people to check it out. Excellent. John, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Fraser. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to John Farr on the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. You can find a lot of great content and previous podcasts on FraserRice.com. My book, Wealth Actually, can be found on Amazon and the other major book sites. Thanks again, and keep making intelligent decisions with your wealth.